Well, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. Today we conclude our series in the book of Philippians, and uh, <clears throat> the hope for this series is that God would change us, that God through this series would change us into people that are not afraid to lose anything because of all that we have gained in Christ. That's why we call this series Gain. Uh, hopefully God has challenged your thinking. Uh, hopefully God's challenged your beliefs about what real gain is over the last three months. I know he, he's done that for me. I mean, this series has just ripped me up in a good way. So I hope that's uh, been happening to you too. Today we are talking about gaining the generous life. And Duel's one of our elders. He's going to be giving our scripture reading for this morning. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 4, 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thus is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, let's pray. God, we, we come praising your name. We've gathered here together. We got out of our beds. We drove over to this building to be with other believers, like-minded Christians, to praise your name, to thank you for being a good God, and specifically for being a generous God. You're always giving to us. You're always sharing what you have with us. Thank you for sharing your word with us this morning. Your word is life. And I just pray, God, that you would bring life to each and every person here. God, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our society just participated in the most fundamental uh, American holiday, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, where our families gathered around tables and we verbally gave thanks to one another for all that we have, 
all that we've experienced. We shared our money with one another. We shared our homes. We shared our privacy. Some of us really shared our privacy, did we not, over Thanksgiving? A lot of people in the house. We shared our food, our drinks. We shared our customs, our traditions. We shared our stories with one another. Thanksgiving was a national celebration of both contentment and generosity in our society. And then, the following day, many of those same people participated in a different, unofficial American holiday, Black Friday, where we express our deep discontentment with our life by pushing, punching, cursing, and literally stomping on our neighbor in order to buy that flat screen TV that we just can't live without. One of the reasons it is difficult for us to live generously is that we live in a society that actually trains us to be discontent. It actually trains us to believe that, it is su- that, that getting is superior to giving. And how many of you know that you can get and get, but that doesn't mean you gain? Just because you get doesn't mean you gain. And Christ is all about us gaining is that God tells His people, He tells us to live like Thanksgiving Day people every day. We're to live generously with one another. And we should probably start, before we go much farther, with a definition of what generosity means so we're kind of all on the same page when I keep saying that word today. Generosity is a readiness to give more of something than is necessary or expected. Generosity is a readiness to give more of something than is necessary or expected. That's what puts generosity in a different category. To live generously is to hold your resources with an open hand instead of a clenched fist. This is mine. Generous people are not concerned with what is efficient. Have you noticed that? They don't care about efficiency. That's not a value they're working with. They're working on a whole different set of values. They're not concerned with what is fair. They're not concerned with what is necessary. They're not working with what's, what's the minimum effort kind of attitude. They think in categories of this, abundance, liberalness, bountifulness, Thanksgiving Day, too much pie, too much turkey, too much. That's too much. That's generosity. They don't think in terms of how much will this expense impact my life, but they think in terms of how much could this expense impact someone else's life. So here's a question before us today, brothers and sisters. How do we treat others like every day is Thanksgiving when we live in a Good Friday world? What we find, I believe, in this passage of Philippians is that through Jesus, Christians gain the tools we need to live generously towards one another. Let me say that again. Through Jesus, Christians gain the tools we need to live generously with one another. And so the three tools that that we find in this passage that Christ gives us is the process, the perspective, and the promise to help us live generously with one another. 
We live generously first by learning to be content regardless of our circumstances. Learning to be content regardless of our circumstances. Let's go to the text here, verse 11 through 13. Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Guys, we are only able to be generous towards others to the degree that we are satisfied with what we have. That's where it starts. In other words, contentment precedes generosity every time. Every time. Every time. Contentment is the fuel that actually moves us to act generously towards others. Contentment is the rich soil that generosity sprouts out of. Here's what Paul says. He learned how to be content. Isn't that a, this is an interesting way of putting it? He says it twice, actually. If you're paying attention, he says it two times. He learned how to be content when he had an abundance of food and shelter and friends and honor and respect and power. He learned how to be content when he was in prison and all those things were taken from him. He learned how to be content. That means Paul wasn't born naturally content. This is a big admission on his part. Don't gloss over this too fast. He's admitting he wasn't naturally born content. It also means that he didn't learn contentment in one day. He learned it. He learned it. Even after his radical conversion experience on the road to Damascus, Paul had to learn contentment over the course of his life. God just didn't give him some revelation and download contentment into him one day. Paul, he learned it over his course of his life. He learned it how? By experiencing different scenarios in his life, different chapters in his life. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that good news for you and me? And you just like, you know? If Paul felt no shame in learning how to be content, we do not need to feel shameful about needing to learn contentment. You shouldn't feel shame about that. You should step into that. Step into that. We are free to admit, you know what? I'm not content with where I am in life. I know I should be, but I'm not content with who I am. I'm not content with what I have. I admit that it's difficult for me to be generous towards other people because I'm focused on getting more for me. I need to learn contentment just like Paul did. You and I were free to admit that. Isn't that great? Thank God learning contentment is not a one-time event. If it is, I probably missed that event. <laughs> Don't worry if you missed out. It is a process. It is a lifelong process where we gradually make progress. Each week, 
each month, each holiday, each scenario, through different situations in our life that God brings us into and through, we become a little more generous towards others. In Paul's day, there were two prevalent philosophies on how to find contentment or happiness. The first real popular one was called hedonism. Hedonism taught that joy comes from improving your situation and accumulating more pleasure. Avoid pain by getting pleasure and stuff and things. This is hedonism. But the funny thing about accumulating prosperity and accumulating pleasures is that the more stuff you have, the more worries you have too. Have you noticed that? Why is that? Because during times of prosperity, you have to actively protect and pad your assets or else they will just sprout wings and fly away, it seems like. Have you noticed that? They just grow a pair of wings and just leave you. You always have to, no, pull it down. No, pull back here. Stay in the yard. The environment will erode it. Time will erode it. Just give it enough time. Moths will eat it. Thieves will break in and steal it. Bad decisions by you or your kids will destroy it. This is an external and a very fragile kind of contentment. It actually breeds anxiety. Remember last week we talked about be anxious for nothing, but what? Pray about everything? The other way to live that was preached a lot and very popular was Stoicism. Stoicism. The Stoics and their contemporaries, the Cynics, uh, they taught that uh, we suffer because of our inward and inner emotions, our inner desires. We want stuff, and we feel these feelings. And so the secret to happiness, according to the Stokes, was to kill our feelings and kill our desires. Just over time, just progressively do things to kill that off. Whether it's talking down about that or dismissing that. They taught to detach our heart from people and from things of this world. This is kind of actually a philosophy you might hear in some churches. Secondly, they taught, passively accept your fate. Just embrace your situation in life instead of struggling to change your situation. You can't change it anyway, so just suck it up, just put your head down, and say, this is my lot in life, and you'll be a lot happier. You won't be frustrated. You won't be disappointed all the time. You'll be content. Basically, they taught that people were taught to stop caring, uh, caring about anything and they'd stop feeling pain about everything. But guys, listen to me. For all of its appearance of strength, I know this is real popular, I think, with men. For all of its appearance externally of strength, this is a crippled and a cowardly form of contentment. Christianity, listen to me, actively rejects, it actively rejects both of these ways of thinking and living and going through life. Paul says right here, contentment is not found by looking outward to distract ourselves with pleasures, nor is it found by looking inward and numbing out our heart from desires and pains. True contentment is found by having the courage to be fully human, yet actively looking upward to our Savior. Not outward, not inward, but upward. 
to our Savior. Paul says it in verse 13 right here. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We tend to read that verse and emphasize the I can. What's Paul emphasizing? Through Him. Paul is saying, I am weak, but thou art strong. Contentment is found, guys, not by making ourselves strong, but by depending on someone else who is strong. And his name is Jesus Christ. That is how you find contentment in life. When we are prosperous as Christians, we say right now in this time of prosperity, Jesus, help me know that you are more satisfying than all these blessings that you're bringing into my life. I want to know you in this time of blessing. I want to know you more in this time of blessing. When you are in poverty, Christian, we are to say this, Jesus, help me know you are more satisfying than whatever I am lacking. I want to know you in this. Contentment is not found by passively accepting our fate, but by actively pursuing to know Christ in every situation we encounter. High or low, for better or worse, in sickness and in health. Sound familiar? I want to know you. I want to love you more in this. That's where we find contentment. Living generously comes also through a perspective. It's a perspective of seeing our generosity as a gift to our God. Seeing our generosity as a gift to our God. Now this is very interesting. Look, look what he says in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, check this out, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, and pleasing to God. That's an interesting series of words right there. Paul acknowledges how lavish, liberal, and abundant the financial gift was that he received from the Philippian Christians. But then, almost immediately, Almost immediately, he redefines their generosity in terms of worship to God. Did you notice that? That's really interesting to me. What's he doing there? What's going on? Well, we know from another letter that Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians, that the church in Philippi was uh, not a wealthy church. They probably had a few, had a few wealthy people there, but by and large, that church was not a really rich church population of people uh, they gave more than what they could afford to give right so they didn't stay within their budget on the generous side of life do you understand what I'm saying 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 through 3 here, here's where we get this we want you to know brothers now he's talking about to the Corinthians these were the urbanites. These were the, these were the well-gifted, right? Well-to-do. They have a lot. We want you to know, Corinthian brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is a territory. Philippi is that church that's in that ter territory. He's talking about the Philippian church. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty... That's the test of affliction, right? 
Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. What a church. They had the reputation of being a generous church. The Philippians gave it a sacrifice to themselves. Why? So that Paul's ministry could prosper and the gospel could continue impacting people. That's why. They weren't just good for goodness sake. They were really good for a reason. But as commendable as all that was, Paul wants the Christians in Philippi to see their sacrificial generosity not merely as a gift to him, but as an act of worship to their wonderful God who has saved them. He's like, I want you to have that perspective on the gift that you gave. I want you to see it through that matrix because it matters. Paul wants to totally reframe their understanding of generosity from a mere earthly transaction between humans into an act of worship towards God. You gave to God. To God be the glory. In other words, their gift is more significant than they probably realize, and he wants them to realize how significant it is. I want you to know how significant what you're doing is and what it signifies and what it means. Brothers, when we, and sisters, when we understand our generosity as a worship towards God, it makes all our excuses for not living generously look lame and a little self-righteous. Have you noticed that? And we're experts at finding excuses for not being generous, am I right? Or is that just me? We're like masters at it. Some of us have like our PhD in that. <laughs> we are the, let's be honest, we're the kind of people that we could literally pull out the Christmas edition of the Good Samaritan catalog, look at the photos and look at the needs, and we can say, well, hmm, I wonder how long that water filter actually will last if I donate money to it. Who's going to buy the feed for that goat if I buy that goat for that poor family? What good's a goat without feed? And who's going to do that? Are those disaster supplies actually going to get to the people? Or are they going to be stuck in storage till they expire? I don't know. I don't have answers for that. Hmm. We are people that will question everything when generosity comes up, when needs come up, when requests for help comes up. We'll question everything from how our resources might possibly be misused to if our resources are really needed by those people. We are people that will see needs and literally find reasons to pass them up and actually feel wise and rational for behaving that way. We'll feel good about it, won't we? And you know why that is? It's because there's a heart issue. There's a heart value at play. It's because our heart is naturally biased against living generously toward others, whether that's globally or locally right down the street. We just flat out don't really want to. 
Paul addresses our biased heart by reframing generosity in different terms. He wants to see it in a different way. He doesn't want the world telling us what that means. He wants God's word telling us what generosity really means. He wants to reframe it in terms of our worshipful expression to God. Not just a person, but to God. The Lord is worthy of our praise. Amen? The Lord is worthy of our sacrifices and our offering for how generous he has been toward us. The reason that living generously towards others is a fragrant offering to God, the reason that is a sacrifice of worship that puts a smile on his face is that it visibly shows that we know him like we say we know him and that we love him like we say we love him. He says, see, I knew you loved me and knew me. That, that just pleases me. I'm so happy for you that you know me and love me. In fact, this is exactly what our Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 25. Then the righteous, the righteous are those that really know Christ. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and come visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You see, a generous life is far more than a gift between people. It is that, but it is more than that. It is an act of worship towards our God. And guys, that always pleases God when he is worshiped. He loves that. Worship to God is never wasting resources. Worship to God is never misplaced. Worship to God is never misused time and energy and effort. No, it is always, always, always a fragrant offering. It just puts a smile on his face like smelling pumpkin pie. That's Thanksgiving Day people. Mm, that's my Thanksgiving Day people. Mm, they're worshiping me. So Christians, let's put down our lame excuses. And let's act generously. The third tool that we gain for living generously, and we really need this tool, is believing that our God will supply all our needs. Hey, we gotta believe that our God will supply all our needs. Let's look at verse 19. I'm pretty much quoting it already. And my God... He's a personal God. He's not a force. He's a father. He sees you. He knows you. You talk to him. He talks back to you. And my God will supply most of your needs. I'm sorry, I misread the Bible. And my God will supply, what's that word? 
Yeah, that's what it says. You believe that? My God will supply every need of yours according to how good you've been. No, I misread it again. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Here's how great God is. Here's how great your God is and my God is, okay? I'm gonna brag on God. God knows that we are by nature untrusting people. We should trust him, but we are untrusting people. He knows that about you and me. He also knows that we are naturally fearful people because we live in a world that is both fallen and finite. It's a world that is filled with brokenness and with limitations. And he knows that. He's not unaware of that. So get this. When God tells us to live generously toward one another, he knows that we are going to raise a legitimate concern. It's a legitimate concern. But if I give abundantly, if I give excessively to others, then there won't be enough left for me and my family. If I'm taking care of the needs of others, who is going to take care of my needs? I've got a problem. How am I supposed to do what you say, God? I'm afraid. I'm worried. You see, I think this fear is actually the biggest reason we do not embrace living a generous life. Hey, times are tough. Times are tough for everybody. I'm afraid that if I obey God and share my money and share my time and my house, my energy or my resources with others like he commands me to, there won't be enough for me and my family. Can we just be honest? That's our fear, right? We're afraid we're going to lose. And so here's how great God is. God knows this. He sees this. And he doesn't belittle that concern. God makes a huge, epic promise to you and to me. He promises to supply every need. Not every want, but every need according to his riches in glory. And that a wonderful promise. That means his supply for our need will be commensurate with what he owns. And God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can get you a cow if you need one. Okay? That's the Psalms. He owns everything. Paul wants us to get this picture in our mind. There's a need, there's a lack, there's a deficit, and and here's me, here's you. And he says, be generous. Whatever that, that is for you, whatever you can do, be generous, be excessive. And he says, here's his promise. Here's this picture. He wants us to picture in our minds a very rich God. He's a very rich God. His supply is endless, boundless, and he is never in danger ever of running out. You and I might be in danger of running out. God's never in danger of running out. He works on a completely different economic system. He works in surplus, excess, too much. 
just gives. I want you to imagine this. Imagine you were to actually be able to walk into God's storehouse. You and I will be able to do that one day. But just for the sake of this conversation here, imagine you're walking into God's storehouse right now. Imagine you could see that now. God opens your eyes somehow and you could see his storehouse. You could actually picture it. You could smell it. You could see everything that's in there. Where he keeps all of his fresh supplies. Every day it's fresh. Every day it's fresh. It's fresh. It's bigger than Amazon's storehouse. Okay, imagine. Imagine walking past, you're here. Hear the footsteps. You're walking past row after row after row after row of supplies and never getting to the back wall of his storehouse. You have to sit down and rest before you ever get to the back side of the back wall of his storehouse. Imagine that. That God is the God who promises to supply your every need. That is whom you and I are obeying. That is whom you and I are asking for help. That is the God who made this promise. That is not a wimpy God. He's not up there clipping coupons so he has enough for everyone. You understand what I'm saying? He's well to do. Jesus said pretty much the same thing a little differently in Matthew 6. You guys remember this? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his followers. He's trying to live by the principles of the kingdom of heaven. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? You want us to live your way, Jesus, but what, if we do, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What am my family going to eat? If we walk with you. He says, don't be anxious about that. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Do you see what he does? He doesn't delegitimize the fear. He didn't say, ah, don't worry about that. Because I know you're worried about that. Right? Your Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God. Here's your priority in all those situations. Live by the values of my kingdom. Follow me. Stay walking with me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you need food and clothing? God says, no problem. Walk with me. I got you covered. I got you covered. Do you need drink? You need shelter? You need transportation to get you to your job? God says, no problem. It's no problem. Walk with me. I got you covered. Hey, I got you covered. I know you need that. I know you need that. Paul is not talking only about material needs here, though those are definitely included. He is talking about our most profound needs, family. The need to have love for each other. We're going to have love in our heart for one another, and one another before we can be generous, right? He knows we have the need to consider others more significant than ourselves. We can't do that on our own. We've got a need. We need him to help us with that. He knows that. The need not to listen to our fears and have our fears dictate the direction of our life. The need to fight unbelief in God the need to rejoice in the Lord always. He knows that you and I have these needs. 
We certainly can't supply those needs ourselves. God is wealthy enough to supply every need we have as often as we have that need, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He is that rich. He wants you to understand that about him and get that picture in your mind when you go and pray to him and talk to him about your need. But God's richness only calms our fears if he is generous towards us, right? And there's a lot of people that you could probably think of that are really rich and they're just as stingy as all get out, right? (laughs) You can't persuade him to help, (laughs) right? What good is it that he's rich if he's not generous? Oh, let's go back to verse 19 again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. There it is. Paul is telling us this promise is powerful because God is both rich and generous. He is both rich and generous. How do we know this? What evidence do we have? What reason we base this on? Because Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, God has already supplied our biggest need. Through the cross, Jesus bore the punishment of our sins and generously gave us his own righteousness for free so that we could have the privilege of becoming children of God, children who are content, children who are generous. He did that for us. Paul puts it this way again in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that grace that has been shown to us through our Lord Jesus Christ? Here it is, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, or through his poverty, you might become rich. Do you know what the cross was, brothers and sisters? you know what the cross was? The cross was Christ going bankrupt and homeless in order that, our, that spiritually broke people like you and I could gain the riches of coming home to God and becoming a part of his family forever. That was what the cross was for you and I. That is unbelievable generosity. That's generosity like you and I have never seen. It is ultimately the reliable promise of God and the generosity of Christ that empowers us to live generously towards one another. It's the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, we love you. What a fitting message and how this just so happened to work out in this calendar weekend. Lord, we thank you for how generous you were to us. We thank you that you gave more than was necessary to forgive our sins, to make us righteous, to make us rich in you, to make us rich in hope, to make us rich in joy, to make us rich in contentment, to make us rich in generosity, to make us rich in love for others, to make us rich in peace instead of fear, We don't have to live that way anymore because of you, because of what you did, because you went bankrupt. You got stripped bare naked on the cross. Not a a single thing to your name that you owned. 
Why? So that we could have all that was yours. Oh, no one has loved us like you. No one has shared with us like you have, Lord. Lord, would you make us that kind of a church? Lord, would you help Crossway get that reputation in town? You know, they're a little church. They may not have much, but boy, they give. But what do they share? Who's that God they worship again? What is that stuff they believe? Lord, would you help us, help our, our ethics match up with our doctrine? And Lord, I thank you that you did all that for us. You did that for us when we were not generous. You didn't wait for us to get good. You didn't wait for us to get perfect. You gave to us. You forgave us. And you love us still today. We are so thankful for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.